welcome to the IOD's Director's Briefing Podcast. This podcast is produced by the IOD's Policy Unit and provides timely updates, insights and commentary on the key issues of the day impacting business leaders. Hello, and welcome back to the IOD Business Book Club. The aim of this series is to showcase some of the books likely to resonate with directors and senior leaders responsible for navigating the changing landscape of business. I am your host for today, Sasha Trapney, Press and Policy Officer here at the IOD. We are back, reviewing some of the books from the Financial Times and Schroeder's Business Book of the Year long list highlighting the key takeaways for business leaders, and in some cases, exploring why some of the books did not make it to the shortlist. In order to do this, I am joined by three excellent panellists, Dr. Ilko Fioli, Neil Bradbrook, and Jamie Watt. Ilko is co-founder and managing partner of Alpha Governance Partners, a fiduciary partnership focused on risk governance with partners based in Asia, North America, and Europe. Based in Zurich, he is also adjunct professor finance ethics at HEC Lucerne. A fellow and council member of the IOD, his board memberships are in the field of investments and blockchain. With almost 30 years in finance, Ilko has a decade of CFO and COO experience in the space. Originally from the Netherlands, he holds a PhD in economics from the University of Basel and regularly speaks on governance. Neil Bradbrook is Managing Director of Ahead Business Consulting, who are experts in strategy, transformation and leadership, working with leaders across the public, private and third sectors to make their businesses and organisations more effective and more successful. He co-founded ABC to bring top quality consulting to small and mid-market businesses and organisations not served by the big brand consultancy firms. Neil is also the chair for the IOD for Central Scotland. Jamie is the IOD's sponsorship manager. He studied politics and economics at the University of Reading, working as an economic analyst for a year at the Office for National Statistics in South Wales, before moving to London, where he began his career in sponsorship. He's previously worked on the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales's Affinity Partnerships Programme and briefly worked at the CBI before joining us here at the IOD to manage our sponsorship programme. Welcome to you all. Thank you very much for being here today. Ilko, if we could turn first to you and the book you've chosen to review, Easy Money, Cryptocurrency, Casino Capitalism, and the Golden Age of Fraud, by actor-turned-author Ben McKenzie and journalist Jacob Silverman. What did you think of the book? Yes, thanks, uh, Sasha. Um, it was a bit of a long read. Uh, in short, um, it's a bit of a sensational book on the volatility in crypto and the craze around it. Um, it is clearly written for entertainment uh, and uh, there are some tasty bits uh, in there. Um, I do not think it's a huge uh, value in, in terms of analysis uh, that would feed uh, directors' views on things or policy making uh, and so on, but as I said, as an entertainment uh, uh, book, it is uh, it is a nice read. 
especially because it contains a couple of interviews with, uh, among others, Sam Bankman-Fried, uh, let's say, which of course in the current um, current news, anybody who's following the current news would be interested in uh, in those interviews, including a field trip, by the way, to El Salvador, a country which adopted Bitcoin as legal tender. So that's uh, that's in short what the book is. That's really interesting. Thank you. Uh, you've touched on the fact that it's sort of for entertainment purposes and, and might not provide a sort of that much insight for business leaders or policymakers. Um, does it give us any insight into how business leaders might adapt their investment strategies in response to the lessons learned from the volatility and speculative nature of digital assets? Yeah. Um, is there anything in there for the business leader? So I would like to make a distinction between digital assets and the topic of this book, which is mainly, it says cryptocurrency and actually, uh, focuses by far, you know, the most on on Bitcoin and doesn't make a huge amount of distinction between the various ways that uh, digital assets, tokenized assets, cryptocurrencies, and CBDCs, and so on, all appear in the digital asset space, which uh, I think is one of the things which is lacking because obviously it would uh, give more insight for decision makers and how to deal with these different types of, uh, of assets. I think there's um, one big lesson. Uh, which is not necessarily unique to the crypto space, uh, relevant to uh, to decision makers. And that is that uh, decision makers should not fall for hype. They should not fall for greed. Um, and it's uh, any decision maker, especially making investments, should, should make an honest and thorough due diligence. And if I say honest, uh, uh, it means also recognizing what are the risks in investments that we understand and which are the risks in investments which we don't understand and for which we need need support. So, um, uh, especially in the field of, um, you know, of, of crypto where regulation to a large extent was still lacking and still is quite, uh, quite unclear, uh, what I like to call a pre-regulatory uh, phase. So I think... The most important lessons are, as I said, around uh, making proper investment decisions um, that any uh, any director, let's say, will be faced with. Now, in crypto, we need to understand that there's a couple of very fundamental things lacking, uh, which make investment uh, decision-making rather difficult. Uh, one is there, as I mentioned before, there is no proper risk management established the way that it is in different other categories of risk. Two, there is no fundamental analysis and no real fundamental analysis of cryptocurrency uh, or these kind of assets, uh, certainly not to the level comparable to regular equity research or bond research, even if there's something uh, uh, out there. Um, uh, and so due diligence becomes uh, uh, very important. There's also, by the way, uh, very little uh, analysis uh, around um, you know, the, the, the utility of any cryptocurrency, i.e. what will create value for, uh, for investors and as a result also for, uh, for decision makers. So there's, uh, there's a whole bunch around, let's say, uh, pages in the book that dis the, discuss the craze which highlights these uh, shortcomings. Um, I think here what is also uh, relevant for decision making is that uh, you need to know the bad and the good. And uh, this book primarily focuses on volatility and, and the craze, as I said, around crypto. 
uh, but does not discuss the good that blockchain technology uh, also expressed in digital assets uh, can bring. And, uh, and that is a, a big, a big uh, lacking, let's say, of the book. Uh, but then, you know, the authors, uh, or especially the main author uh, himself, will admit very easily that uh, he's not really deep into this space. He's not an, you know, an, an economist or, or um, a decision maker here. He's an, he's an actor and, and uh, he writes, uh, you know, out of a general uh, interest in, the, in this space. So I don't think we can expect much uh, there, there as well. Um, let me stop there for the moment. Yeah. I think uh, that's really interesting and, and touching on sort of your first point, how looking away at what's in there that's relevant for the business leader, how important is the role that bodies like the IOD can play in ensuring adequate literacy for business leaders in this space? Yeah. So how can we ensure that businesses make informed decisions, especially when faced with emerging largely unregulated markets and opportunities? Yeah. So what I particularly appreciate when I engage with IOD members, uh, typically directors in their own firms, is how grounded they are, i.e. Uh, they've worked uh, through the ranks, um, they, sit, they serve on, uh, on their own board or on other boards, and they have a very, uh, typically many of them have a very good grasp of their business, what they're, what they're, that they're overlooking on behalf of uh, investors or other stakeholders. And so, um, and I think that that is largely, has been largely lacking uh, in the crypto space. And I think the authors here also highlight that. Um, uh, and you also have seen it, by the way, in, in the case, the recent case of FTX, uh, of course. So I think what, what the IOD can provide is based on that groundedness of directors, which we anyway have as a body, um, uh, sort of a, a notion for risk. Uh, a limitation of, you know, an acceptance of what it is that we know and what we don't know and get training for, any training for and consulting for, uh, and a prudent way of engaging with business practices uh, that, is fair, that is clearly needed in uh, in the crypto space or in blockchain space at large, in fact. And so I think the IUD can uh, increase that awareness uh, because all of the membership and all of and all directors, for that matter, and everybody in, in, in involved in governance practice governance practice is going to be, um, uh, let's say, faced with exponential technologies in one, one shape or form, be it artificial intelligence or, um, uh, in this case, blockchain or crypto. And so this humility, this humbleness, if you will, of understanding what it is that you know and what it is that you don't uh, is, uh, is something that, uh, that I think the IOD can help support. Uh, and also, if you will, offer uh, uh, content to directors to get engaged with this, uh, with these technologies, because as I mentioned, everybody's going to be uh, faced with those. Great. Thank you, Ilko. Um, would you recommend this book to IOD members? And if so, why? Uh, do you have an idea of as to why this might not have made it onto the shortlist for the final award? Yeah. So first, to start with your last question, uh, it doesn't. Prov this book is, as I say, uh, a piece of entertainment uh, and written in a uh, sensationalist style, um, and uh, it doesn't provide a huge amount of analysis, uh, and it doesn't. Um, uh, I don't think it helps much with creating, with supporting judgment uh, for this space. So I think that uh, any book that would be on the shortlist, I would expect. 
uh, would receive, um, you know, would be more analytical, would be uh, offering some tools, uh, but also some concepts how to engage with this topic. Uh, and and the book doesn't uh, doesn't cover that. As I mentioned, it doesn't uh, discuss the good of the technology. Um, um, it doesn't speak about the, the decentralization that this technology uh, is uh, is promising. Um, and uh, specifically on this book, it touches upon a couple of very U.S. Uh, American specific problems such as uh, financing of political parties, revolving door of senior management with regulators, celebrities being involved in selling um, uh, tokens, creating a bit of a cult. Uh, And so I sometimes feel this book uh, sort of more points to how elements um, of, of, of governance, if you will, work in, in around these assets, work in the United States versus any other jurisdiction. Uh, and so it's, uh, it, is, it is not a complete book which directors would, uh, would use, uh, I think, to inform themselves on this specific topic. There are uh, other books out there uh, which, uh, which do a better job uh, uh, in that uh, than, than this book. Great. Thank you, Ilko. Really honest review. And I think that's really important when we do stuff like this. Um, Neil, turning to you now, uh, the coming wave, technology, power and the 21st century's greatest dilemma. Uh, Bill Gates has called this book by Mustafa Suleiman and Michael Baskar as an excellent guide for navigating unprecedented times. What were your thoughts? Um, Thanks, Sasha. Uh, So as you've said, the coming wave looks at the twin development of AI and synthetic biology, the opportunities they bring, and even more so the risks they present. Um, So firstly, it tells us the genie's out of the bottle, i.e. the chance of ceasing development on these two fields is nil, and indeed not even desirable as our future needs them to to succeed. Um, To quote a little bit, they say, our future both depends on these technologies and is imperiled by them. They present unprecedented opportunities matched only by unprecedented risk. And sooner or later, a powerful generation of technology will lead humanity either to catastrophic or dystopian outcomes. And he describes this, as you said, as the meta problem for the 21st century, with the book then going on to explore how we might confront it to get the best from technology whilst avoiding disaster. Um, So if I kind of paraphrase all that, he's saying that this is the most significant challenge mankind has ever faced and Succeed or fail is the last challenge we'll ever face because the combined impact of these two technologies is such that if controlled and well-managed will evolve societies in something different and better and solve global warming and help us understand the universe and stop disease, but uncontrolled presents an existential risk for humanity. Um, so that's the kind of backdrop. Reading it, I actually felt it was more like two books than one. So the first is a well-researched erudite history of technological development throughout mankind and looking at the evolution and impact of civilization changing technologies or omni-use general purpose technologies, as he calls them. Uh, And the second is kind of science fiction dystopia, but without the clear narrative. Um, So it's a future world just in the next decade or two, uh, uh, in in their words, that's either the apocalypse or this totalitarian state. And then tagged onto the back of that is his proposal of how to, and I quote here, navigate the tightrope to avoid falling into the abyss. Um, he, he did remarkably well not to mention Skynet or 1001 A Space Odyssey, um, although he does make a passing reference to sounding like the plotline of uh, a Hollywood blockbuster. 
Um, but what he's telling us is that without smart intervention, intervention, the future's either the machines take you over, uh, as in those films, or a world like Big Brother or Minority Report. Um, in terms of did I like it, the first half actually I did like. It didn't tell me that much I didn't already know, but was a coherent and useful drawing together of the history of technology in one place and the impact that previous foundational technologies have had on society. The second half, I couldn't help feeling would have been better if it had actually been written as a true dystopian novel. Um, all the same points could have been made, but with greater panache and being more engaging. Um, overall, it kind of smacked of someone smarting from their voice of concern, not being heard by the powers that be. So kind of getting on their soapbox at Hyde Park Corner instead, or in this case, writing a book to try and warm up the masses in support. Uh, and to be fair to him, he, he did kind of signpost that in his introduction as well, that that was actually why he wrote it. Um, and whilst he's clearly very knowledgeable on technology and AI, his solution set's pretty weak. So during the course of the book, he keeps signposting, I'll come back to that and give you the solutions later. And when you get there, it's underwhelming at best. And relative to the length of the whole book, it, it almost merits afterthought status. Um, and his solution set is primarily with the nation state. And I agree this is where the decision making for this sits. But he's writing the book for individuals and businesses who cannot make those decisions. So unlike sustainability or global warming, there's nothing for us to do our part in it. Um, and even his nation state interventions are either too obvious or fail the feasibility test. For example, he says that governments must understand these technologies by also building them themselves and therefore should hire the top talent and pay them commensurate with the going market rate. And in the very next sentence, he says, this is 10 times what public sector pay is. Now, when we're considering strategies uh, for our clients, we use the SAFE model to assess whether the strategy is a good fit. And for any of uh, uh, our listeners who have done the IOD strategy course, they'll be very familiar with that. Uh, and this is a non-starter. Irrespective of whether you feel its validity in the approach, it fundamentally fails the feasibility criteria. Governments literally cannot afford to pay 10 times and never will be able to. Overall, for me, I feel the authors have fallen into a really common trap of business books, and Ilko said the same, it's just being too long and too verbose. So I, I kind of wrote it as, uh, why, why use 10 words when I can use 100, and why state something once when I can repeat it five times? Um, so I kind of get that people feel the need to justify the price tag and in their minds more pages equals better. But the net effect is I just got a bit bored. I understood the point made first time and I didn't need to repeat it over and over. Uh, and doing so just actually reduced the impact for me. Um, and business people are typically time poor but happy to pay for value. Um, so I've no objection to the price if you make smart points that prompt useful thoughts or action. But I do object to wasting my time. Um, so, <clears throat> uh, for me, overall, in summary, it, it's an important topic for, topic for discussion, but it'd be much better served as a far shorter summary of the salient points to prompt that debate. And would I recommend the book, hand on heart, unless you're very passionate about this particular field, then no, because it's just too long. So I think it's an important topic, and I encourage people for that, but I wouldn't recommend reading the book. Overall, I'd score it three out of five. That's really interesting. Um, thank you. It sounds like, yeah, it, it fell a bit flat, um, which is different to, to a lot of what I've heard. There's been a lot of hype around this. So that's really interesting. And I'm sure something that our listeners would find um, really informative. Um, we know that IOD members are sat almost 
based on our, our market research and, and uh, some of the stuff that we put out there, they're almost sat 50-50 as to whether they see AI as an opportunity or a risk for their business. We know it's something that members want to sort of adopt more into their day-to-day business practice. Um, you spoke about how the book signposted problems and sort of wanted to come back to solutions. Um, is, is there anything within the book? Does it give any insights into how business leaders can effectively strike a balance between the opportunities and risks posed by AI and synthetic biology? N- not really for business leaders. He, he's got... Uh, is essentially his 10 points at the back of the book, which is his strategy. But really, they're all the level of decision making is at that nation state. So for me, that is a bit of a gap in there. Um, what I would say is, is because we actually had this debate at an IOD uh, roundtable last week, and we want to talk about skills fit for the future. And so this came up as a, a topic. Um, uh, in, in the book, it recites a McKinsey research, which says that, uh, you know, 70% of a large number of jobs will be replaced by AI in the next short while. And we heard Elon Musk last week at the um, summit, um, AI safety summit, saying, you know, uh, in the future, people have a choice whether to work or not. Now, what it showed is um, current leaders amongst IOD members, there's quite a large discrepancy in understanding. So some people have quite a clear view and were well aware of the, both the risks and opportunities and already thinking forward. And an awful lot of people around the table hadn't actually yet considered it or thought about it at all. Um, so I think the first thing, and this is where for me, the IOD is a strong role to play. The first thing is we have a duty of care to our members to actually engage that debate so that everyone understands it and actually is involved and presenting opportunities for them to learn and understand a bit more about both the opportunities and, and potential risks. And then secondly, whilst individuals can't really influence uh, you know, decision makers um, a government, then the IOD can. So we can then become the amplification uh, of the voice of our members to actually push that button and make sure that the right decisions we feel are being made uh, at government level. So in, in the book itself, it, it's lacking. It's a bit like Elko said as well. Um, I, I kind of want a book to give a little bit more about what we individually can do as business leaders, and that wasn't really in there. But I think the IOD actually can have a role to play and fulfill that for our members. Great. Thank you, Neil. Um, I think this leads quite nicely onto your book, Jamie, and our last book. Um, You've chosen to review Blood in the Machine, The Origins of the Rebellion Against Tech by Brian Merchant. Summarised perhaps as an eye-opening read tracing today's collective rage against big tech um, back to the Luddite uprising. Uh, What did you think? Thanks very much for having me on. Um, it was a very interesting book, as you say, primarily and a historical account of the Luddite uprising that took place across north of England during the early 19th century. Um, it presents these events through the twin narratives of uh, Luddite themselves, George Meller, as he leads a little cell uh, confronting the machines directly, sneaking into different factories and breaking them in the West Riding of Yorkshire, and Gravener Henson, who was a pro-reform campaigner who managed to generate money from different communities that were being affected by the adoption um, of new forms of automation during the early Industrial Revolution, and trying to use that to fund legal challenges against their adoption based on existing laws that many people felt should preclude industrialists from, from adopting 
these new automated technologies as much as they did, but also lobby parliament to try and bring in regulations to help protect workers, such as preventing wealthy factory owners from paying them in truck, uh, which was paying them with goods, or from uh, just getting rid of them when when they could be replaced by a, an innovative new piece of technology and maybe a child that, that can use it instead. Uh, throughout the book, though, uh, the historical events are described using contemporary language, and there are regular interjections, uh, bringing the story up to the modern day and trying to frame our current debate about automation and the development of new technologies in this broader historical context, uh, which is very makes it very very relevant. It poses some pressing parallels between the, the state of the working class in the early industrial revolution and the state that some people find themselves in now. Obviously, the, the news is rife with stories from, for example, Amazon warehouses of where workers are perhaps don't have the best conditions or Uber drivers who feel quite up against the wall because of the, the circumstances they find themselves in um, working for Uber. Uh, so it uses this to great effect to to discuss the problem of automation in a more historical context and and perhaps from a broader, more sociological point of view. Uh, I think it does really well in this. It's very accessible. It's very gripping in describing both the plight of people then, but also making it feel very relevant by drawing that parallel all the way up to the present day. Um, if I were to start with some criticisms, though, I would say that uh, the the parallel is somewhat stretched too thin for me, um, as by the book's own admission, there were broader issues contemporaneous to the Luddites, which exacerbated their conditions, leading to the revolt. So, for example, the Napoleonic Wars loom large throughout the narrative because uh, they drove a series of trade sanctions and also high levels of taxation, which helped to drive the the working classes across the north of England to the point of revolt. Um, similarly, the government was so draconian in its clampdown on this working class resistance, in part because they conflated it with uh, liberal revolutionary movements that were spreading throughout Europe at the time. Uh, and neither of those parallels really extend to the present day um, w- without making any any comment on things such as Brexit, the levels of taxation we face at the moment, or perhaps populist movements across Europe, the, there is no quantitative comparison between them and the situation that was faced in the early 19th century. And I think that holds back the parallel from extending quite as convincingly to the modern day as it otherwise could have. However, um, it is as a a romantic treatment of the Luddites, it does serve as a much needed corrective to many myths that persist to this day about them. Um, For example, when the word is used nowadays, it has quite a specific connotation as referring to someone who's narrow-minded. But if you look back at the movement, the the way in which they articulated themselves through uh, anonymous letters left on factory doors or town halls, the, the references they make to law codes extending back centuries, such as to King Charles' Royal Proclamation, forbidding children from being employed in roles that should rightly be reserved for apprentices, the Luddites were clearly very aware of, or at least what of their rights or what they thought their rights were, and were very able to make that convincing argument themselves. Um, similarly, the word has a connotation of uh, being regressive, of, of trying to resist progress. And yet, if we look at how the movement petered out in the end, 
um, the reform that people like Gravener Henson fought for was not implemented at the time. What he was able to do by the end, though, was create the first proto-unions before laws forbidding trade unions were repealed. And if you look at the most effective actions they undertook, it was to collect money from workers to uh, buy up the machines themselves so that they could be rented out to workers at a fair price. So the Luddites weren't anti-technology. They weren't anti-progress. They just wanted to see it used in a way that didn't demean or degrade their own existences. So it works. the narrative works as a, a strong corrective to those myths, which I help, think helps give back some agency to working class movements today who may otherwise be tarred with a stigma as being regressive by virtue of being seen to resist technology, uh, which is a very worthwhile thing for the, the book to add to the conversation. Um, there's ultimately, I think, even if today's precariat is not in as dire a situation as yesterday's proletariat, workers' rights movements still face obvious and pressing challenges from the new wave of automation there is. And in learning a little bit about how previous movements have dealt with that and responded to it, and perhaps even failed and didn't succeed in their goals, I think there's a very powerful lesson to be learned. And the book does very well, certainly, in, in delivering that. Thanks, Jamie. Um, the book sort of talks about the arguments for wide-ranging reforms, deals with social justice issues. Um, ESG remains such a salient issue for corporate governance. Um, does the book uh, propose any insights for sort of modern corporate governance um, and how directors can meet their social responsibilities? A great question. It, it does put forward a wide range of of suggestions for what we could do legislatively. With regards to corporate governance specifically, I think some of the most instructive examples it provides are to do with how decision-making is made in modern-day companies. Um, so what the book's really arguing for is for giving workers themselves more of a say in how the technology that affects their working conditions, how they do their roles, giving them more of a say in how that technology is adopted it provides a terrific example of over in the United States, uh, in Las Vegas, where gambling, uh, casinos, sorry, were looking at bringing forward uh, automated waiting staff, um, which would obviously have a massive impact if you were employed at the Bellagio or the MGM Grand as a member of the waiting staff. Uh, it did lead to some industrial action as workers' unions uh, took action to try to prevent this. But the way that the situation was resolved in the end was by the two different bodies communicating to each other and ending up settling on a way in which the casinos could implement these technological in innovations to bring down their costs, to boost their profits, but without leading to the waiting staff they had employed for many years who relied on that, that income being turfed out, jobless onto the street. Instead, they put aside some money so that if you were an employee who was going to be affected, you could take a, a payout of six months uh, wages, or you could enter a retraining program, which the casinos would also put aside some money for. So it increased the um, it increased the initial cost to the casinos to adopt this new technology, but it did this by channeling the the profits they were going to make from it anyway um, towards you know either a payout or retraining program that would therefore mitigate the impact that it that these new technologies would have on their workforce, and now. They have automated waiting staff. They've cut down on the cost. Profits are higher. Uh, they've done it in a way that hasn't meant 
anyone's lost their job by virtue of it, not willingly, not without getting compensation in return. So that was probably the most illustrative example the book uses with regards to how it wants to see um, decision-making made in large corporations. It's involving workers and giving them a say in what they, how they feel about technology's impact on their, their working conditions and, and what they would like the company's leaders to consider when making these decisions. Great. Thanks, Jamie. Um, would you recommend this book to ID members? And if so, why? Do you have any idea as to why it may not have made the shortlist? Um, I know uh, you've sort of touched on some of the criticisms you had already, but um, yeah, it would be great to know. Of course, yeah. I'll probably follow on with a second question first. I, I do think it is at times somewhat um, can be distracted. There are uh, fleeting tangents throughout the work, for example, a couple of chapters exploring situation of an African-American slave at the time in the United States called Charles Ball. There's also a smattering of chapters dealing with the romantic poets who were active at the time, the Luddite uprising. Now, the problem is that neither of these tangents are really long enough to stand on their own, but they're, they're far too long to, to really s contribute to the central thesis. So it can feel a bit distracted at times. Um, and I think that's probably the, the biggest criticism I would make of it. It's, uh, it's somewhat overambitious, I think, in its scope. Um, however, I, I don't want to be overly negative because it was a very interesting read. It was a very relevant read. It, it told the story of the Luddite uprising very well. And making that relevant to today's situation is no mean, mean feat. So it, I would definitely recommend it to those members who are interested in, in history broadly. I'd recommend it to those, those members who are interested in their kind of social objectives objectives in in broader how business and technology interact with our society and and anyone interested in in disruption theory or or innovation more broadly perfect thank you jamie um i think now's a good time to bring everyone in um considering the reviews that we've heard of these books um I mean, they cover their own themes in their own ways and rightfully have different insights to present our members and business leaders. Um, but looking at them as a collective, uh, these books present different cases of and responses to rapid advancements, new opportunity um, and the opportunities, risks and reactions of businesses around sort of uh, these advancements. So considering that, how might the narratives presented in these books influence the re-evaluation and adaptation of regulatory frameworks in response to technological advancements, ensuring they are agile, forward-thinking, and capable of addressing emerging challenges in a changing business landscape? It's a really interesting debate on do we, do we need regulation to impose legislation to do the right thing, or can business leaders to be encouraged to do the right thing through kind of ESG governance? Um, and that they each have merits. The problem with regulation and legislation is it takes an awful long time. Uh, and some of these technologies are moving so fast that by the time you knew what the right answer was, you might not have time to implement it. So I think there is a case um, that actually, and we've seen a strong movement and the B Corp movements, you know, been, been gathering momentum. The, the, the Generation Z are far more 
interested in in kind of values and culture and purpose of organizations than maybe previous generations were uh, and i think that's that whole movement and ethos is changing the way people do business and actually making businesses more conscious and that's only a good thing so i think we can find that uh, through esg governance is actually probably the certainly the quickest and and possibly just as effective ultimately you kind of want both but you you can do that first and then legislation can follow on behind and and it's a bit of the belt and braces after, after the event to make sure everyone complies because not everyone will do esg maybe the way that we think they should um, but again organizations like the iod being who we are can absolutely lead the way on on both of those angles but particularly you know the esg side and what we should be doing as directors uh, around the board table uh, as well as putting pressure on the policymakers to to change the regulation behind the scenes but for me i'd do it that way round if i uh, if i may follow up um, i think there's a task here for uh, for leadership uh, so those uh, people who serve on boards uh, in non-executive or in executive positions, uh, I think they need to realize that we are living in, in times of huge change. Uh, and which means that, and I've said it before, that we need to um, be humble to what it is that we see and uh, be open for new, for new, new approaches to things. Uh, to governance, we may, new, may, new, uh, sorry, may need a new what I call ontology, you know, new language, new jobs. Now you have sustainability officers. Ten years ago, we didn't have that yet, and so on. So uh, I think that um, <clears throat> we need to be humble there, uh, and uh, and not only look uh, in terms of easy, you know, is it opportunities and threats? Uh, because, for example, the threat, one of the big threats in AI is, of course, uh, the when, when does a robot take uh, take on moral agency? starts making the decisions that uh, that affects people uh, this is not a business opportunity or business threat anymore right and so uh, we will need uh, a little bit more profound thinking uh, around that and as i say humility in the face of it so i think the iud has a role to play there on the one hand to provide um, this awareness this training and so on to membership to uh, to governance at large uh, but then also influence uh, uh, government's response um, the reg- on the regulatory side of things, uh, I agree that regulation is slow and it is never one size fits all and it is uh, incomplete and so on. And so um, I think that we also need to talk uh, among us and understand you know, a little bit what are the behaviors that we accept irrespective of regulation, which may come in later. And for that, uh, we need to, in- again, increase our awareness and also rethink a little bit the concept of value. Uh, which we are doing right now out of the ESG debate, uh, going into the, the purpose debate, uh, which, of course, is, is alive and kicking with a number of uh, UK-based academics active in that field as well. So there is, um, there's lots to do. Um, and, uh, and I would call on people to, as I say, be open and, and humble uh, because we live in very different times than anybody could have imagined five years or 10 years ago. Uh, and uh, and the IUD being the the unique representative of of governance in, in for corporates uh, has a unique role to play there. I I absolutely agree and, and, and echo what what both of my colleagues have said. I think a huge amount of humility is needed when thing technology is developing as fast as it is. The popular phrase in Silicon Valley is to move fast and break things, and I think there's going to be a large amount of tension between those who 
are in favor of that kind of mindset and those who have a little bit more humility. Uh, I think we've already seen it in the last few days, OpenAI, Sam Altman's being forced out potentially by independent board members because they weren't so keen to move as quickly as he wanted to, um, to achieve his own profit motive and perhaps uh, wanted to take a slow approach so that they could consider whether or not they were going to break something that couldn't be fixed. And um, I couldn't agree more that organizations like the IOD can play a great role in, in spreading best, best practice and in promoting amongst the community uh, that kind of thoughtful attitude towards how their own businesses decide to engage with this developing area. Um, because we, it obviously comes with, with wide risks that need to be taken into account. Great, thank you all. I think that that ties it together really nicely, and and is is a really important conversation to have around this. Um, lastly, a question for Neil. Um, I appreciate you haven't read all the other books on the shortlist. Um, do you think your book has what it takes to win this year's prize? Could you see any reason why it couldn't? Um, so so I, I read it before the shortlist was narrowed down to the long list. I, I, I was slightly surprised it made it to the long list for some of the reasons I, I put in my piece. So I guess, firstly, if we look at why why did it do that? And I guess, in my mind, it probably made the long list because it is a really important debate. So that's kind of point number one. Uh, and, and an important debate on one of the key topics of the moment. On top of that, uh, Suleiman, is, he's hugely credible. He's very... He's very bright, smart, uh, and erudite, and he writes nice prose, which I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of as well. But I can also see the journalists appreciating that. And maybe the journalists have slightly more tolerance than I do for the repetition and being over long. So they kind of they, they, they let that one pass. Um, do I think it has enough to win? For, for me, no. And the reason is it's a bit like uh, Ilko talked about his. It raises a topic, but it doesn't provide anything that business uses, business leaders can use in their business to drive change or improvements. So, so that's the gap. I think a book that wins the business book of the year should be something that all leaders can take and do something with rather than just, yes, it's an important thing and we're waiting for decisions to be made. And for me, that's the reason I don't think it has what it takes to win. I haven't read all the other books, as you say, so I don't know what, what else is out there, but I would like the, to think the winner would have some more tangible things that the leaders could actually do and implement. Great. Thank you. Um, I think we've now reviewed four of the six on the shortlist. Um, so it'll be really interesting to see uh, if any of the ones we've reviewed do win um, and to sort of look back and, and see what we thought about that. So thank you very much. Um, and that concludes this year's review of some of the long and shortlisted books in this year's Financial Times and Schroeder's Business Book of the Year Award. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one of this review, I strongly urge you to do so. And you can find this on our website or on our Spotify, as the books this year, regardless of the winner, have presented us with some really important takeaways for business leaders and IOD members. We'll find out who the winner is on the 4th of December and keep an eye out on IOD socials as we'll be making our own prediction ahead of the announcement. All that's left for me to do is thank our panellists, Ilko Fioli, Neil Bradbrook and Jamie Watt for their insightful reviews and for taking the time to read these books for us. That rounds off this episode of the IOD Business Book Club. We'll hope you'll join us again soon. Thank you. We hope that you have enjoyed this Director's Briefing podcast. 
please do subscribe to our channel to ensure that you are kept up to date on our future podcasts. You can find more information about our work on our website at iod.com forward slash news and on our LinkedIn and Twitter profiles. You can also contact us directly via policy-unit at iod.com. Thank you.